Please open your Bibles to Hosea chapter 14. Hosea 14, the last chapter of the book of Hosea. Thanks, Trudy. Hosea has been a kind of a whirlwind to work through. Lots of judgment, lots of calls to repentance, and it's not often that I've connected the book of Hosea with Charlie Brown. But yesterday, I was watching a short Charlie Brown video with my kids. There's a little snippet of a of a comic strip put to animation. It had Charlie Brown and Snoopy, his dog. Snoopy was on top of his doghouse sleeping and woke up hungry. And the next scene is Charlie Brown running out to the doghouse with a bowl of food and Charlie Brown saying, I'm so sorry for being 10 seconds late. Snoopy is not pleased that he's had to wait for his food. So he crosses his arms, turns his back to Charlie Brown and refuses to eat. He's indignant that Charlie Brown would be late. Charlie Brown's response is this. He says, I know what it is you want me to say, and I'm not going to say it. I refuse. It's ridiculous. You can starve to death for all I care. I can be just as stubborn as you. I'm not going to say it. I'm not. Oh, good grief, all right. I also apologize to your stomach. At which point, Snoopy turns around and receives the apology, and begins to eat. Snoopy had a way that he wanted Charlie Brown to apologize, and he wasn't going to accept anything less than the conditions he had set forth. Now, I don't want to compare Snoopy to God, really. That would be blasphemous. But there is a sense in which we see people set up standards at which they are going to receive an apology from somebody. You kind of have in your mind what somebody needs to say, You know what they need to apologize for, what they need to uh, ask for forgiveness about. And unless they come in the exact way that you expected them to come, you're not going to extend forgiveness to them. Of course, God is not Snoopy. Of course, God is not petty. Of course, God is not trivial. The Lord does have standards, the Lord has expectations. He doesn't just let you come to him any way that you want. Just as I am is a great song and has some great theology to it, and we understand that it means we can't come with our own righteousness, but we can take it too far to think that we can just concoct our own way of coming to God, do what we want, and come to him and expect he's going to receive us. It's not the way it works. There are right ways and there are wrong ways to come to the Lord. And right now, it says in Acts 17 that God is calling everyone, everywhere, to repent. To repent simply means to return, to return to God. And so this is a big deal because everybody, everywhere, is called at this moment in history to turn to God. But we can't come up with our own ideas for how to do that. We don't want to come to God and find that he will not accept our apology or our terms of reconciliation. 
At the end of Hosea, we've had 13 chapters that have built basically a case against the nation for their iniquity, that they are guilty before God. They've been faced with the severity of their sin and the judgment that comes as a result, namely exile from their land. The very last chapter of Hosea begins with this, verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. After all of the heaping amounts of judgment, of indictments, the last and final word of the book of Hosea is a call to the nation to return to God. Turn back to Him. For a people so sinful and iniquitous as the people of Israel were, the call to repentance, however, cannot come without some fleshing out of what that means. Israel cannot just come on their terms, in their way, and say to God, okay, we're back. Take us back. We need to listen to this chapter because it gives us instructions about repentance. It also gives us hope that repentance can be real, reconciliation true, and that God can restore the broken relationship. We need to hear this because by default, on our own, our relationship with God is ruptured. It's ruptured by our own choosing, because we have willfully gone into sin. We've turned our backs on God. And if we were to come back to him, we need to come back in the way that he would have us do so. Some come to the Lord presumptuously. Some come back to him in ways that he will not accept. Some here may have been in church for plenty of years. You may have spent more hours in a pew than you can count. And you just presume that God has accepted you back because you've been in the pew, you've been in the church, you've been in the people of God for as long as you have. You've declared to God, you're here, and that's good enough. You could be like Saul, who broke God's commands and just expected that was okay until Samuel came and pointed out that it wasn't okay that he neglected to do all that God had commanded him. Or you could be like Cain, who's presented an offering to God and think that should be good enough. And God did not look on Cain or his offering. You come with expectations that God should accept you for who you are and what you've done, and you've never come to him with real repentance. Repentance, again, simply means to turn or to return. And our text will show us the manner in which we are to return. And it is not to come to God and say, here I am and you are so lucky to have me. It's not to say to God, it's all right, Everything that I've done in my past is water under the bridge, and you can count on me to be your man now or your woman now. I've learned a lot from those past times. I've sowed my wild oats. Now I'm yours. It's not repentance. It's not to come to God and say, well, at least I'm in church. I'm doing better than my husband or my wife or my kids or my neighbor. 
I read my Bible. I give to the church. I don't yell at my dog as much as I used to. What more do you want from me? That's enough. I'm here. God, and you better like it. It is not to say, I feel so bad about my sins. I feel rotten to the core every day. If only there were some way to feel better about myself. I come to church to feel better about myself. That's not repentance. It's not to say I've never been that bad of a person. I've made a few mistakes, but so has everyone else. I come to church and follow Jesus because he's the best option. My parents did it. My grandparents did it. And it's just the American thing to do. That's not repentance. Repentance is not, I had an experience with God once. I felt him. He spoke to me. I know he's real. I know that God is on my side. That's not repentance. So what is repentance and how do you do it? Well, thank God Hosea 14 is here. It gives us the truth about repentance. It's divine instructions on how to repent. And so let's listen carefully to it as I read Hosea 14, 1 through 9. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity. Accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but, his trans- but transgressors stumble in them. Let's ask the Lord to write these truths on our heart. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word as people in need of instruction. And I pray that you'd give it to us this morning, that you would help us to grasp the seriousness and the joy of this text. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hosea is writing this chapter as a message of hope for a nation in exile. He's walked through severe judgments that have come upon a wayward nation. And the culmination of national judgment on Israel was exile from the land. And Hosea has prophesied that. He lived through that. He saw the nation go into exile, the northern kingdom. 
He saw a generation experience judgment for their sins and not experience the mercy of God. And yet at the end of the book, he holds out this message of hope to a wayward people, to call on the people who have experienced God's severity and judgment and calls out to them to return to God. The call goes out to an entire nation to repent, to turn. But the final verse of this book indicates not necessarily that everyone is going to turn back who hears this message or has experienced a taste of the severity of God, but it's the wise. So look again at verse 9. It says, Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. This indicates that not everybody is going to repent and turn. It's only those who are wise who will do so. It's the wise who will take heed to the message that is being proclaimed, and they will abide in it, they will live by it. They will acknowledge that the ways of the Lord are right and the upright walk in them. This is not saying that in order to be wise, you need to be perfect. It's not indicating that you need to be completely righteous. Wisdom is accepting God's word as it is and accepting that it accurately describes you. So the wise in this case would be the person who has listened carefully to the prophecy of Hosea, understands that they are sinful and facing judgment, but by the mercy and love of God, they can find forgiveness and restoration to the Almighty God. That's the wise one. It's the one who accepts the rightness of God's ways and then decides to walk in them. The fool is the one who transgresses God's way continually after being confronted with the truth and refuses to walk so that he actually stumbles. So we take this text, it's collectively a call to a nation to repent, but it's also a call for anybody who's wise to hear these words. Are you wise? Or are you foolish? Are you willing to listen? Or are you going to keep going your own way? The call here is to consider, are you wise? If you're wise, then understand these things. Don't neglect them. It teaches you how to repent. This passage is rich because it gives you almost a step-by-step instruction manual for how to repent. We shouldn't take it too far and say that if you just regurgitate the words here, you'll be okay. It's not so simplistic as that, but still they are divine instructions to a wayward people for what repentance should look like. And so I'll break it down for us as we consider five elements of repentance. The five elements of repentance that are given here. The first element is know your need for repentance. That sounds almost psychological, right? The first step in figuring out your problems is admitting that you have one. Well, this is a little bit like that. Know your need for repentance. That's the way verse 1 starts out. It's a call to return, and here's why. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. It tells Israel and tells us why we need to return. It's because we're full of iniquity. Iniquity is a nasty word. It's not one that you really want applied to you. 
Although it might be a big word and a little bit out of use in our day and time, if you go up to somebody and say, you are full of iniquity, you're not giving them a compliment. You brood of vipers. You venomous people. You adulterous nation. It's that kind of language. It is saying that if you were to open up your soul, it would be full of dead man's bones, decaying flesh, rottenness to the core. You stumbled because of your iniquity. It's not a mistake. Sin is not a mistake. Sin is not just an accident. It is an activity that is crooked or wrong. You have stumbled because of your crookedness. You're a crook in and of yourself. And to admit this is to admit that you've lived a crooked life. If God's path is straight, yours is zigzagged and downhill. You've lived a crooked life. And so you need to know why you need to repent. Why do you need to turn back to God in the first place? It is because on your own you have lived a crooked life, going away from God. And so that's element number one. You need to realize that you are full of iniquity and you've stumbled based on your own sin and rebellion against God. Know your need for repentance. Element number two. Return by speaking to the Lord. That's what verse 2 says, take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him. This is an important element because it is not just presuming on God that he will have you back. It's not just assuming we're good. I know I'm a sinner and so we're good. I've admitted it. We don't want to be presuming upon the Lord. Personally, when I've had a rift with somebody, or some sort of break in the relationship, for that relationship to be fixed, to be really fixed, we need to talk about it. We need to deal with it. Get it out in the open and discuss the problem so that we can move past it. And so the instruction to Israel, and by way of Israel to us, is when we go back to the Lord, take with you words. I think it's safe to assume that in this instance, the kind of repentance advocated here is not what Jesus describes in Matthew 15, 8. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. We know that there can be a superficiality to our words. We can just say things and not mean them. And some people just can talk all day long and they look so good by their words, but their heart is far from God. This is not talking about that instance. The kind of situation Jesus was describing was when people would give God praise out of one side of their mouth and then with the other part of their life, they would go and live in complete contradiction to God's ways. And they think their praise was still acceptable to God. You can't live that way. That's duplicitous. And so clearly the kind of words coming here are words that emanate from the heart and are true and sincere. We're admitting our guilt and coming to the Lord. 
We are presuming that not everything is okay. We come to God with words because he has told us to come that way. The command of God and from his open mouth is return and take with you words. It's merciful that God in the very first hand even offers for us to come back to him. And when we come, we come in his ways and we come admitting our guilt and taking with us words. This is kind of like 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We speak to the Lord. On multiple occasions, I have advocated to people who are struggling in their relationship with God, go and talk to him. Go talk to him about what you're struggling with. Talk with me about it, but go talk to him too. And oftentimes I find there's a a resistance to that. There's an unwillingness to go get before the Lord, to get on your knees and talk to him about what's going on in your life. Talk about the waywardness. Talk about your crookedness. Take with you words. Go to him. Get on your knees, close the door, take some time, clear out your schedule, shut off your phone, and get before the Lord. Take with you words in return. We're not left wondering what to say. It tells us, take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, verse, that's right. It's exactly what it says. We can just listen. Take these words with you. So that's the third element. Return by seeking forgiveness. Return by seeking forgiveness. Take away all iniquity except what is good. The words to be spoken to the Lord first are a request. Returning to the Lord means that you come to the Lord asking him to forgive your iniquity. And notice that key word, all. Take away all iniquity. It does not begin with this prayer to the Lord. It does not begin with listing all the various ways that you have legitimate excuses for your waywardness. I was just born this way. I've been brought up this way. But he always does this. And she always says that. And I've always thought this way. And everybody else thinks it's fine. Straight and to the point. Take away all iniquity. If you get the privilege of having an audience with the holy God, do not waste it by coming up with excuses for your behavior. Get right to the point. Take away all iniquity. Use your opportunity with, uh, with, of an audience with God to do something that is important. Ask him for something bigger than the heavens. Ask him for the forgiveness of your sins. 
Ask him to take away all of your iniquity, all of it, every last drop of it. Admit that you have so much and it may fill every nook and cranny of your heart and you need him to get down deep into every recess of your soul and take all of it away. Not one last sin remaining in its guilt and condemnation that you deserve for it. Take it all away. Ask him to clean you with soap that is more powerful than any man-made soap. Ask him to cleanse you with the blood of Christ to take away all the guilt of all of the sin that you've ever committed. All of it. You come... When you come to the Lord in real repentance, you come like the pilgrim of Pilgrim's Progress, like Christian, with a burden too heavy to carry. You come to the cross of Christ and you let his pierced hands lift the burden of sin off your back. He lifts all of it when you come to him like that. He takes it all. It doesn't mean you're not going to struggle as a sinner the rest of your life, but it means he takes away all of the guilt for all of your sin. You come to your Redeemer, and you don't come with all the sin on your back, and then you come with your hands offering to him all of your good works. You come to him holding up all your smelly rubbish, and you ask him to take that. You bring your failures, your burdens, your sins, your dark secrets that nobody else knows about. You bring those to the power of the King of glory and let his purity overcome your impurity. You let his righteousness overcome your unrighteousness. You let his life overcome your death. You have all of your iniquity taken away by him when you come with this kind of repentance. You ask the Lord to take all your iniquity away and to accept what is good. That basically means to accept what is good about your words. Accept what is good about your request. And what is good about your request is that you are trusting the King of glory to take away all of your sins. That's what's good about it. You don't bring good to him. You bring your sins and he takes it and that is good. You trust him That's the third element. You return by seeking forgiveness. The fourth element is to return with a commitment to praise. It says at the end of verse 2, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. The language is a little bit complex here, but it basically means we offer our lips as bulls. Have you thought about doing that? Offering your lips as bulls? Basically what it means is that you are not coming with the sacrifice of an animal to God. You are not coming to slaughter some bull as you come to him. What you are doing instead is you are going to come with a sacrifice of praise from your lips that can be like a sacrifice of a bull. We will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. This is like Hebrews 13, 12 through 15. It says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. 
For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. In this element of, of repentance, you come to the Lord having brought your sins to him, having asked him to forgive you for all of your iniquity. And as a result, what can you do? What's your response? Well, like Psalm 116, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. After you received the forgiveness, after you've turned to the Lord, admitting your iniquity and asking him to take it all away, what's your response? The sacrifice of praise from your lips. You don't need to go find a bull or a goat. The sacrifice has been made in Christ. You just need to return to God the praise that is due to him for forgiving a guilty sinner like you. That's what you do in repentance. That's the fourth element. You commit to praise God for his goodness to you. The fifth element is you turn from what you had hoped in. Turn from what you had hoped in. Look at verse 3. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. And we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. Those are big words from Israel. Much of Hosea has been written to a nation that has sought after other nations for help. They sought after Assyria. They have sought after their own military might. They have worshipped false gods and idols. And this verse 3 is a huge turn of events because now the very things that Israel had hoped in are the very things that they are confessing that they have no more to do with. That's crucial in repentance. In your life of sin, there have things that you have valued more than God. Things that you have put your hope in that are not God. Things that you have done that show God is not your God. God is not your hope. God is not who you are trusting. Repentance is to admit that all of that was folly and you will have nothing to do with those things anymore. You're putting them away. You're turning from them. It means that you have a new view of things that you once held dear. Things that you once put your hope in, you find hope in no longer. You are turning over a new way of life. You are going to trust in God and follow him, and you're going to put the ways of the world behind you. That's a crucial element in repentance. They acknowledge that Assyria won't save them, that they're not going to ride on horses anymore. In other words, they're not going to trust in their military might to save them. And they're not going to worship false gods. Repentance finally admits the foolishness of your past life. 
oh, you're going to be tempted to go back to those things. And occasionally you will indulge in the things that you used to indulge in. You'll have patterns of thinking that you will return to. But if you are a new creation in Christ Jesus, those things will come into your life and you will repudiate those things. You will abhor them and you will turn from them freshly each day as you encounter those temptations coming upon you. Because once for all, you have admitted those things are folly to you and you want nothing to do with them anymore. So you come back to the Lord in repentance. You admit that your good works will not save you, even if you had once trusted that you were good enough. You come to the Lord admitting that your strength or the stockpile of weapons in our nation or the stockpile of food, ingenuity, strength, or bank accounts will not save you. You will not ride on the religion that calls upon your strength and not the Lord's. You will flee from that. You're not any longer going to rely on your parents' faith but on God. You're not going to rely on your wife's faith, but on God. You're not going to rely on your husband's faith, but on God. You will no longer worship sports, sex, good feelings of being approved by others, good feelings of being made self-secure. You're not going to longer worship your work, your family, your books, your home, your gardens, your cars. They will not fill the void of God in your life anymore. And you say to God, you alone are God and you alone I will worship. That's real repentance. This text is so valuable to us. It just shatters these notions of fake, trivial repentance and shows us the reality of it. And it is so good because you turn away from those things that were hopeless and you turn to the living God. The rest of the chapter is basically a, an encouragement of hope for those who turn to the Lord. It can ask the question, if you strip yourself of all of those things that you had hoped and all of the pleasures that you once had in this fleshly life, if you kind of divest yourself of all of those things and you no longer have the pleasures of this world, the security of the things of this world, then what do you have? Where's your hope? And I guess you could say that's the sixth element of repentance is that there is real hope for you. When you leave the futile things of this world, there is real hope for you. Verse 4, hear what God says. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive, and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. I won't go through these in detail, but I count eight items of hope that God declares he will give to the repentant. The first one is healing. I will heal their apostasy. Not only does God heal you of the judgments that you rightly deserve for your life of sin and rebellion against him, but he heals you of the very thing that led you away from him in the first place. 
I will heal their apostasy, says the Lord. God overcomes your opposition to him. There's a lot of hope there. Have you tasted of that? Have you tasted the overcoming power of God that has come upon you and has stripped away your apostasy so that you're no longer running away from him, but running towards him? Have you tasted of that? Do you know where that comes from? It comes from him. He's the one who put that in you in the first place. He's the one who says, I will heal their apostasy. He overcame your rejection of him. The second item is love. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. This is a God who is not begrudging in a relationship. It's not a God who's going to constantly bring up past hurts and past grudges, but he is a God who loves freely. His love is initiated by himself, not by you. The third item of hope is life. I will be like the dew to Israel. The life-giving dew in a barren, otherwise barren land is what brings forth the growth from the ground. He shall blossom like the lily. Number four is strength. Although Israel will be like the lily, it says that he shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. A beautiful flower is a lily, but somewhat fragile. But cedars of Lebanon with roots that grow deep are not fragile. They take a chainsaw to cut down. For those who know the love of the Lord, they will experience the strength of God. Although you might feel easily toppled, when you abide in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are as untoppleable as Jesus Christ is. He will uphold you. He will strengthen you. He will give you his power. Fifth one is beauty. Verse six, his shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. This is speaking of a people who once were so decrepit in their sin that God compares them to dead man's bones, to rotting flesh. And now he says that they're beautiful and fragrant. Recall driving up into Sequoia National Park in California, coming out of the smog of Los Angeles and that whole basin, and you get fresher and fresher air, and then as you get up into the, the great trees of Sequoia, and the elevation rises, Priscilla and I roll down our windows, and we let the fragrant air of the pines waft into our car. It smells so refreshing and so good. And in a tender way, the Lord speaks of those who know of his love and have tasted of his forgiveness. You'll be beautiful like the great pines of Sequoia. You have a fragrance of life about you. The Lord doesn't look at you any longer like rotting flesh. He looks at you like a pure, undefiled virgin being presented to the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. Beauty. Number six is safety. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. Can you think of a safer place to be than so close to the Lord that his shadow rests upon you? Wherever you go, wherever you're doing, you've got the shadow of God covering you. You've got his protection. You live under the shadow of his wings. 
means that if another shadow, even the shadow of death, encroaches you, you know what's still there? The shadow of God to protect you. You have safety when you have the Lord. Number seven is prosperity or fruitfulness. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Grain and vine were the staple crops for Israel, or grain and grapes were the staple crops. He's not saying that their grain and their grapes will prosper. What he is saying is that they will prosper like the grain and grapes. This means that God will work in you in such a way that you will bear the kind of fruit that this world actually needs. I'm not talking about material prosperity. I'm talking about prosperity in the fruit of the Spirit. When you come to the Lord and have forgiveness of sins, you will have fruitfulness. And then number eight is prominence. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. As believers in this world, we just feel like nothing, nobodies, such little influence. But Paul reminds us, don't you know, you are going to be the ones who judge angels. Don't you know that Satan, the most powerful enemy, views you as his enemy? Don't you know that you have the almighty king of heaven and earth sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high, and you know what he's doing right now? He's interceding for you. That's prominence. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. One day it will be all unveiled, and it will be shown who you are, namely that you belong God Almighty. These are the elements of hope that accompany true repentance. But at the end, verse 8, O Ephraim, what have I do to do? What have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. It's a final challenge. Idols or God. You can't have both. You go to God, and you experience all that hope. At the end of the day, you know what God says? From me comes your fruit. Sounds an awful lot like John 15. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in in me. Repentance, turning from all of those fruitless things and going to the one who will bear fruit in you. It's true repentance. Have you repented? Oh, I hope you have. Let's pray. Father, your word is clear to us again. It has words of instruction for us, and we pray that you would apply this to our heart. We would be among the wise who would think on these things and put them into practice. 
At the end of the day, we give all praise to you for any fruit that is born in our life. We thank you, Father, that you would even have us back, sinners who had turned our backs on you. Oh, Father, you've been so gracious and merciful toward us. May we praise you, the fruit of our mouth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.